0: Um, revelation 8. Guys, per this card, we're hitting four chapters today. You know what I mean? So um, that's what's happening this morning. If you haven't grabbed one of these or, or looked on our website, sojournonline.org slash revelation, we've given you the the game plan of where we're going each week so you know there's no curveballs for you. You know where we're going to be this Sunday and next. And so uh, be using this to just guide in prayer and and, and just kind of preparation for Sunday morning. We want you to be in the book with us as we navigate through it. I know it gets kind of crazy, and we're going to feel that some today. Uh, We'll feel that some next week and the following week and then probably the week after. Um, But it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's in the Bible, and so we want to adhere to it. I uh, would love to begin here. Um, 1995, a lot, a lot happened in 95. The Braves won the World Series in 95. Um, but Mel Gibson also starred in the movie Braveheart in 95. Um, and I was thinking about that moment when William Wallace, Mel Gibson, um, playing William Wallace, um, on horseback, half blue face, Right? You can imagine if you've seen it, he's on horseback riding up and down the front lines of the Scots, and he's motivating them. He's charging them with what is about to take place as they're about to. uh, wow, I just said uh, uh, like five times, they're about to go to war with England. And so there's, there's a lot happening right there as he's, as he's motivating them. And so uh, I just want to remind you of, of the charge that William Wallace gave. Uh, he said, I am William Wallace and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. tyranny. You have come to fight as free men and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? And again, I'm not going to use the voice he used. It's just that will be embarrassing for everybody. Um, Yes, fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here as young men and tell our enemies that they may never take Our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? And then they roar and it's just crazy. But there's this charge that he gives to these Scots as they're about to uh, experience this war. And and what happens in this text that we're going to be in this morning is is John provides a similar charge to us as the church. Um, He's providing it to this crew of seven churches that we've talked about previously. And he's doing it to us today. The difference was that the battle John is providing isn't against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers is a much bigger war than even the war William Wallace is referencing. And so we're going to hear more about some trouble that the world's going to experience. And in the midst of that, we're going to get a charge for the church. And so this is our sixth week in uh, the book of Revelation. And for those that are new or haven't been able to track with us, I want to remind you of a few things. One, uh, four things in particular. One is that this book is a letter. And so as we read it, we're reading it as a letter written to real people in real time, which means it doesn't mean for us, but it didn't mean for them. And so we're reading it through that lens. Second it's an apocalypse, which means it's unveiling. It's designed to awaken our imagination. And speaking of imagination, I was reading something from Eugene Peterson this last week. And he said this about the book of Revelation. I think it's really relevant for us as we dive into it today. He says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there's a new way to say it. I read the Revelation to revive my imagination. John takes the truth that has been eroded to platitude by careless usage and sets it in motion before us. That's what Revelation is designed to do. We're not getting a whole new set of information nowhere else in the Bible we find, but it's simply using the same uh, content but with different genre to communicate something to awaken imagination from within us. So it's a letter, it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, which means it provides comfort and conviction to the people of God. And then lastly, it's a liturgy for worship. It's designed to point us to Jesus. And so... Uh, Again, we have four chapters, and we're not going to read it all this morning, but we're going to read parts, and hopefully that'll give us a high-level view, a survey, if you will, of what John's doing here. And so Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It's going to get wild, guys. It's going to be fun this morning. Uh, Revelation 8, 1, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So Revelation 8 begins like Revelation 6 begins. Both of them begin with a lamb, and both of them begin with him holding a scroll. And so we see in Revelation here it says, "Now I watch." Revelation 6 says, "Now I watched when the lamb opened." Sorry, this verse says, "Now I watched how the lamb opened the seventh seal." And then in Revelation 6, we see that now he watched him open the seven seals. And so we see there are very similar things happening here. And it's important for us to remember who is holding the scroll. Again, we're about to get into some wild stuff. But the point John's making over and over again is remember who is in charge here. So we backtrack to Revelation 4 and 5, the most stable place in the universe. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see one who's seated On the throne, again the throne is not up for grabs. It is steady. There is only one that's on the throne, and he holds uh, by his, his. This one on the throne holds a scroll. This is the way by which shalom will take place in the world. And then at his right hand is a lamb, and that lamb is the only one that's able to take the scroll out of the one on the throne's hand. And he takes the scroll and he begins to pop off these seals. So we see very clearly that evil isn't running freely here. That he is the mastermind. He is the one who's bringing forth redemption to the world. and It's it's designed to provide courage to the seven churches. It's designed to provide courage to the people, uh, the church in Ukraine. It's designed to provide courage to the people here in this room. And it's here in the most stable reality in the universe where we get this window of these trumpets And it begins with silence. You can imagine this silence is deafening. You ever been in a a room where it just feels so quiet, it's just uncomfortable? Well, that's what's happening in this moment. It's deafening for John. It's this hush of heaven. And this tells us that something huge is about to take place. It tells us something powerful is about to take place. Something utterly decisive is about to happen. And we see the seven trumpets happen. After that, and so let's consider these trump- trumpets. In verse six, it says, "Now the seven angels who are the seven trumpets prepared to blow them." So these trumpets were about to be blown, and when they blow, when they're blown, there's a very similar reaction to what happens in the seals that we just read. See, the seals were uh, communicating the difficulty of life, and then comfort happens afterwards. But the trumpets, they sound an alarm for us, communicating that mercy is still available. To us, and then we read the first four trumpets. It says in verse seven, "The first angel blew his trumpet, and I want you to listen. There's a phrase that's going to be repeated over and over, fourteen times, over and over again. As I'm about to read, so try to look for that. Um, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and the third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up." A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So these first four trumpets have been blown, and there's this cosmic moment that happens in the heavens, the earth, under the earth, those that are on the earth, those that are in the sea. And these trumpets are, are sounded to warn of the world of the pending judgment that's to come. See, in the Old Testament, if you read it, you find that there's this trumpet reference over and over again, the sounding of a trumpet and it's designed to do a couple different things, but some of them include calling a people to a holy assembly. A trumpet would be sounded, and people would gather for a holy assembly. What also would happen when a trumpet was sounded throughout the Old Testament was that it was warning people of what is to come. And that's what these trumpets are doing here. They're warning people what is to come. See, these trumpets are in alarm that something is wrong. That's what the harsh realities, these harsh realities are the things that we even experience in this world. And these trumpets are, are blown to communicate that something is wrong. There's a warning that's happening. See, judgment for us, especially in our day and time, is hard. It's a hard pill for us to swallow. It's not something that we want to engage. It's not something that I would find uh, something to be excited to talk about even here, but it's throughout the scriptures, and therefore we listen to it. I do believe that judgment does provide good news for us. It communicates things about God to us. It communicates that he cares about his creation enough to not leave us on our own. Communicates that he's not willing to sweep tyranny and pain and injustice under the rug. That's what justice, I mean, judgment communicates to us that he's not silent to the injustices of the world, that our choices do matter from the highest of high in power or the lowest of low, that he cares about our choices and he responds accordingly. See, God takes injustice and evil seriously to the point that he would allow his son to be crucified in our place. He cares a lot about this. See, God is not intolerant. He doesn't, it's said differently, he does not tolerate justice and evil. He deals with it. God will judge tyrannical leaders. He will. That's who he is. He cares so much that he's not going to leave the world to itself. And so these trumpets are one final chance of mercy. We're not going to have a date of when they are. But we find that when casualties and tragedy and pain happen, that they can be little trumpets to us here and now. See, these parallel the Egyptian plagues. If you remember those 10 plagues that you read throughout Exodus, that story of Moses going through up to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. You remember that? Over and over again, he says, let my people go. And then a plague comes. And Pharaoh, he hardens his heart. And then, and then Moses comes back and he says, let my people go. And then a plague comes and it happens over and over again. What are those plagues? What are the purposes of those plagues? Those are merciful moments for Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't have to lose his firstborn son. The people in Israel, uh, Egypt did not have to lose their firstborn children. There were moments, nine, leading up to those moments where God was providing mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy, up to nine times, and finally that tenth time was the thing that triggered that last plague. But the design was mercy over and over again to the people in Egypt. See, each of these plagues in Egypt were were judgment, but they were also merciful. When we think of judgment, we only think of negative things. In judgment, mercy happens It's an opportunity to turn our hearts back to God. Every plague in Egypt was an act both of judgment and mercy to turn them to God. N.T. Wright says this about the plagues and about this moment here that we just read, that we should not be surprised then that that just as Egypt was smitten with plagues as both a warning and a means of liberation, so the whole world is to be smitten with similar plagues in order to warn its inhabitants and to deliver God's people. To the plagues built on themselves, culminating in the Passover, and that was the final straw, But John has this in mind. He's well aware of a historical Jewish context. And so when he's hearing and seeing these trumpets and these seals, he's knowing exactly a similar moment in in the Jewish history of these plagues. So these first four are merciful. What was that word? Do you remember that word that was used over and over again that we just read? It's okay. You got this. Third, yeah, a third was used over and over and over again. So this, this is not a mathematical, what, is, what does third mean? It's, it's not, we don't see it as, as, a, as a number as much as we see it as a symbol. And it's a symbol for mercy. It's not two-thirds, it's a third. So over and over again, God is, is establishing that he is going to be merciful in the midst of these. When you read third, read mercy. So we see that in the first four Trumpets, that in the midst of this necessary moment that leads us up to this moment where Jesus would bring forth shalom, there's this necessary need for um, judgment to happen. And then we get to the fifth, the fifth trumpet. And this maybe is the most painful of them all. It says this in chapter nine, verse one. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told to not harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will not flee from them. This could be the worst scene in all of the book of Revelation. This moment right here. Again, it's symbolic. Don't think you need pest control okay? Like, this is not where you're going, like, oh my gosh, if I got any pest, then maybe it would solve the problem here. Like, that's not what's happening. It's it's referring to something much larger symbolically. See, this star is the antagonist. It's Satan himself. He's fallen. Isaiah 14 says that he's fallen from heaven. And so this one is Satan, who is given the keys. And it says five months. It's so random, right? It's like five months. Like We can, again, charts, figure out five months. That's not the point here. This is an apocalypse. This is designed to be an unveiling. It's designed to be uh, used with symbolism. And so this is referring to a finite time. When the readers heard, this is a limited time. This is not a long time. This is a limited time. And John says the keys were given to this star, this one Satan. He received these keys. They were given not taken. Satan cannot take these keys. He was given these keys for a period of time to finish the point that would culminate in redemption and restoration. Again, there's one on the throne. It's not up for grabs. This one, this star was given these keys. He can only operate within what is given to him. So we see even in this moment, as we look bigger picture in Revelation, that he is a part of what's happening in Ukraine. Let us not forget that. That anytime we see war, we know that there is a mastermind behind all of this. The second horse, remember we read this just last week, the bright red horse, he is out for war. His goal is to bring people against people, to bring uh, empires against empires. His goal is destruction This is what's happening, and yet we are a part of the people of God, and we can pray, and we can ask God to bring peace and healing. So we ought not to ever underestimate the power of this star, the power of Satan. Martin Luther went to the point of saying, On earth is not his equal. There is none on earth like this one. But neither are we to overrate his power. Because in Revelation 1... We see that Jesus, he holds the keys of death and Hades. And maybe for a minute, he was given them. But there is one who holds. There is one who conquered death and Hades. Again, this is about a liturgy of worship. This is about reminding us to not focus on the enemy, but to remember there is one who is holding the leash. There is one who's in complete charge, and he's bringing this to culmination. And that stirs us to worship, to not focus on the details of what's happening in the chart, but to draw us to worship Jesus. Amen. And then we see the sixth, the sixth trumpet here in the bottom of Revelation Nine. And then this 6, we're reminded again of hearing this phrase, third, over and over again. And it's another reminder of mercy, God extending mercy. So remember what trumpets are. The tragedy and pain are designed to sound an alarm to the world. Moments even like we're in. Man, when you begin to think about war, all of a sudden, things come into perspective for a minute. The things you care about, if you turn on CNN and Fox News right now, you know what they're not talking about? is biting against each other. All of a sudden, there's a bigger, more unifying moment that's happening. We're not focusing on the things that don't matter anymore. It's what happens in these types of moments. See, tragedy causes society to ask questions we never normally ask. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures... He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's in these moments that he uses trumpets. He uses the painful, tragic moments to shout to his creation, to turn back to him. See, in pain and tragedy, an alarm is sounded. Trumpet is a calling the world to turn back to God. It doesn't mean we as the people of God ignore pain, not at all. Jesus entered into our story, and he was well acquainted as the man of suffering to rub shoulders with those in pain. He never stiff-armed people's pain. He listened, and he wept, and he entered into their stories, and so we are the same. We enter into it like a first responder with care and tears, but in time, we have a message of hope, not answers. We don't understand certain things, a lot of things, but we do have hope. And the tragedy within the tragedy of the trumpet scene is that not everyone repents. Not everyone turns. And so we finished nine. And John pauses, he does this. he like gets these crazy moments where he sees a window, and then he takes a step back. And then he's kind of encouraged and he's reminded certain things. And so in 10, 11 and following, we get this interlude that takes place in the next several chapters. And so in, in 10 and following we get this interlude, where we get this moment. in Revelation six, we get this moment of these seals. and then in Revelation seven, John's comforted. Remember you're the people of God, that you're sealed. That you're secure, you're not safe, hardship might come, but you're secure. And then in Revelation 8, we get and 9, we get this crazy moment we just saw, and then in 10 and following, we get this charge. Just like William Wallace, half blue face running up and down the Scots front line, charging the people. John is charging the church, the early church, these seven churches, and charging us today with something very specific. You are secure. You've been given a charge. We're made for this. And so in Revelation 10, we see some of what the charge is. There's two, two kind of images I want us to see that are saying the same thing. In Revelation 10, we get this weird moment. All of it's kind of weird, but we get this weird moment. You can say that. This is weird, but it's okay. We're going to navigate through it. And so in Revelation 10, verse 8, it says this. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, was standing on the sea and on the land. It's not the same scroll as Jesus. It's a different scroll. It's a little one. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So, John, in this moment, he's kind of taking a breather from everything he just saw, and a scroll's put before him on a plate, and he's told to eat it. It's like, okay, no water. Like, how are you going to digest this? Again, it's complicated. It's like, how do you do that? But he, he eats it. And it's this imagery that we get from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is also given a scroll. And he's also called to eat it. And that's also the the means by which he's going to go and proclaim a message to Israel. And so John receives this same scroll. So to John, to the seven churches, to the church in the 21st century, we are charged with a task to proclaim a message. And we'll get back to that in a minute. And then in Revelation 11, we get a picture of two witnesses, the gnarly They're gnarly. There's this, in the Left Behind series, they make these two guys literal. So they literally die and they literally come back to life. And it's crazy. It's great for sales. Horrible interpretation for a symbolic book, but great for sales. And so let's read several verses um, of what's happening here. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. And the altar And those who worship there, just pause real quick. The temple has been uh, desecrated in 70 AD, about two decades before. And so there's kind of some weird stuff even happening as we're reading through this. But do not not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth, with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Again, imagery to Moses in the, in the Exodus. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. few more verses. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that, that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. It's so crazy, we got two witnesses. We got two lampstands, we got two olive trees, all of the symbolism. I'll try to break down some of the symbolism for those that care, um, but a few things to clarify. Again, the temple is gone. It has been decimated by Rome in 70 AD, and so the people of God are now the temple of God. There's, when we read temple of God here, we're reading the people of God. The temple of God is now the people of God. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see 42 months and so this can go either way when it comes to interpretation. Some people take 42 months literally, meaning the last three and a half years before Jesus returns. 42 months, three and a half years, same time frame. And so that's an open-handed issue for us. You could see that and say, man, I think that this actually references the last three and a half years before Jesus returns. Cool. Cool. Others, open-handed, would say that this is a time throughout the church history in in which the the world, the the church is caught between two kingdoms and this clashing is happening. You can see it either way. The two witnesses are, are clothed with sackcloth. And throughout the Old Testament, sackcloth is a sign of repentance, which means that these witnesses aren't just proclaiming something, they're living what they're proclaiming. It's referring to the church and how they're living what they're proclaiming. What they're saying and what they're, what they're living is, is the same. And it says that they came back to life. Okay, what are, we, what are we doing there? We see it's a symbol reflecting that you may individually die, but the church will never die. The church will come back to life. We see it throughout history, moments where God revives the church and it comes back to life and it's awakened again. We say, Lord, let it be so even here and now, that the church, big Sea, not sojourn, big C church, be awakened and come to life again. At the very end of this text, we see a tenth, this reference to a tenth and to 7,000. It's again a symbol of mercy amidst all of these judgments. There's an emphasis of the mercy of God towards people. It's a symbol of mercy. Again, John is steeped in the Old Testament. And so when he reads, he's aware of Isaiah 6. When God says that he will save a tenth of the people, but nine-tenths will die. But here, we see only a tenth will fall. He's aware of Amos 5, where only a tenth of the city will remain. But here, nine-tenths of the city will be saved. There's a reversal that has occurred that as the church remains faithful, God is extending mercy to the world. And these witnesses, they're given this testimony. This testimony, you can imagine if you've ever walked through or been a part of, we've seen um, through media uh, people that give witness to different things on trial. Witnesses oftentimes are just communicating what they saw. They're not the ones that are on trial, but they're communicating what happened to the one that's on trial. See, the church isn't on trial as the witnesses. Jesus and his reliability is on trial. Is the lamb really the only provision of God? Does the lamb really hold the keys of death and Hades? Is the lamb really the only one worthy? See, he is the issue. He is on trial, and the church is just a witness. We're just declaring what we believe to be true. So the two lamb stands, the two witnesses, the two olive trees the scroll that's being eaten is all picturing the church under pressure in the world, yet full of the olive oil, full of the Spirit, burning for God, living for God. That is the picture that we're seeing here. So, again, we see in Revelation 7 this picture of comfort. And in Revelation 10 and 11, we're getting this charge, like William Wallace on those front lines. We, as the church, are being charged with a message to the world. See, as the people of God, we have been given a charge. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been given a charge. And this is the moment we've, we've been created for. When darkness and confusion increases, that is the moment for the church to shine brighter than ever. It is our moment that we have to be able to be a light and laying down our lives for the world. See, we are to be just like Jesus to the world. When you hear me say that, you can think that I'm saying that it's implying power. Not at all. Jesus exerted his power by laying down his life. And it was through the laying down of his life that, that uh, new life was birthed. See, the seals and the trumpets don't bring repentance, but the message from the church does. And it's our job. Our job is to live this thing out by grace and actually be a countercultural solution. It's our job to be different. When you find yourself looking just like Fox News or CNN, we've missed it. We've missed it. We are called to be incredibly distinct, laying our lives down like our master, being distinct in our pace of life, being distinct in our relationships, being distinct in how we forgive, being distinct in our identity and what we're finding as our our source of identity, being distinct in our generosity, being distinct in our parenting and our work-life balance and our care for the quartet of the vulnerable. We are called to be incredibly distinct. This does something to the world. The world longs for this. The world is not looking for more Fox News, CNN people that throw religion on top of it. It's disgusting, and it's disgusting to Jesus. We're called to be incredibly distinct in the world. Our job is to actually imitate the loving sacrifice of of the lamb who's willing to die for the world. Our job is to remember who we are fighting against, not against flesh and blood, not against party or ideology. I mean, there's more going on. And this is where we're invited to shine. We're sealed. We're secure, not safe, secure, not insulated, secure. Our job is to be an authentic witness, clothed in repentance and humility and the spirit of God. See, we become what we're proclaiming. You can't give what you don't have. So the call here is that wearing of sackcloth, that embodying the message that you're actually proclaiming. It's a challenge for us to actually look in the mirror and say, am I reflecting Jesus with my life? If I'm not, we're invited to repent. See, we proclaim the faulty claims of individualism, the faulty claims of relativism, the faulty claims of nationalism. See, what is wrong with the world isn't a party, what is wrong with the world is not technology. What is wrong with the world is not Russia. What is wrong with the world is not immigrants. What is wrong with the world isn't our president or our former president. The Times of London once held an essay contest asking people, this was several decades ago, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded very simply by saying this What is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. See, we are broken. We are selfish and self-absorbed. But there is a Savior who has come into the world to rescue us. And with that posture of humility, that posture of laying down our lives for other, that is the environment by which we can see God move in power. See, we give up our lives to show the world how Jesus gave up his life. And that's the beauty of what we're charged with. Not to demonstrate power, not to see certain politicians in place. our call, yes, we want to be active in being civilians. But above all, our call is to lay down our lives, to see the world flourish. And then the text ends. And again, not too bad. 11:13. we're finishing up here. Four chapters. Boom time. And Revelation 11 uh, verse 15, we're reminded, yes, we've received comfort. Yes, we've been given a charge, and finally we remember who wins. In Revelation eleven, fifteen, this decisive reminder where it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. See, we are in a war, a cosmic war. It didn't start a week ago. We are in a cosmic war, and it has been decided. We know the end of the story, friends, which is why we don't want to get caught up with the civilian things that are going to lead us from being kingdom people. we got to live in this tension, this dance of being active in the world, but knowing we are part of something much greater than here and now. See, God has put you where you are on purpose. He puts you here in this time in history on purpose. You have meaning and purpose with this charge, with this comfort that has been given. I yearn for this, this kingdom come declaration. In Ukraine and all the other aspects of here locally, it won't be the last time we see pain in this way, but his kingdom has come and it will spread and all other kingdoms will be dethroned and we look forward to that day. It has come. And it will come, just like William Wallace charges the Scots to remember who they are. John reminds us and charges us to remember who we are. Don't get caught up in the wrong things. Remember, you've been given a charge to be a people that are distinct. This is what Revelation is reminding us. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't promise an avoidance of pain. You didn't promise an avoidance of sorrow. You promised you'd be with us in the midst of it. You promised that you have sealed. You promised that you're going to finish this thing. And in the in-between, help us to be faithful. Lord, where our hearts have just grown to grab onto the wrong things, Lord, cause pure repentance, clean conviction to lead us to following you more fully. God, we thank you for this charge. And Lord, for some, as we maybe just know some relationships where we've just been so passive, knowing that there's just, we've danced around the idea of just talking about Jesus to somebody else. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage. As a community, we don't have to give out a track. That's not the call here. The call here is an authentic witness of the kindness of Jesus. Let us not forget the kindness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. So even as we partake in community together, let us remember your mercy for us, your care for us, that you are the lamb that was slain, And now we are yours. Help us to be people that show the sacrificial lamb to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.